Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people made to life in Yarra, and pay our respects to all elders, past, present and future. This episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust. Fitzroy Library is fortunate to have the continued support of the Ewing Trust, a fund that fosters literacy, libraries and a lifelong love of learning in the historic Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy. Through the support of the Ewing Trust, Fitzroy Library is able to run special events and programs, including the Fitzroy Writers Festival, for the benefit of Fitzroy residents and visitors to the area. On this podcast, award-winning author Lee Kaufman interviews Graham Simpson and Ramona Caval to discuss the anthology Split, True Stories of Leaving, Loss and New Beginnings. Split, which is curated by Lee Kaufman, is a compelling anthology of personal essays in which 18 of Australia's most beloved writers reveal, for the first time, powerful, occasionally funny and often heartbreaking stories of significant endings and their aftermath. These candid and courageous reflections on the human experience of loss and leaving acknowledge the price we often pay for a much-needed end or new beginning. Lee is joined on this podcast by Split contributors Graham Simpson, author of worldwide bestseller The Rosie Project, whose essay shares how he discovered his past, perhaps autistic self, and writer, journalist and broadcaster Ramona Caval, who writes about the bittersweet end to her career at the ABC. Split is published by Ventura Press and is available to buy from all good booksellers as well as being available to borrow from Yarra Libraries. Welcome to the Yarra Libraries podcast. My name is Lee Kaufman and I'm an Israeli-Australian writer based in Melbourne. Today we'll be discussing my most recent book, an anthology of personal essays by prominent Australian writers which are edited and contributed to. It is called Split. True Stories of Living, Loss, and New Beginnings. I'm very lucky to be joined today by two remarkable split contributors, Ramona Koval and Graham Simpson. Together we'll be discussing significant life changes, how this impacts us, and how we live with them. I suspect that at this tough time of pandemic, this topic might be even more pertinent than ever. And we'll also talk about the genre of personal essay, and what it's like to write about one's own life. But first, let me start by introducing our speakers, even though I suspect they need no introduction, but please indulge me as I list just some of the many, many achievements. Ramona Koval is a writer, journalist, broadcaster, editor, and an honorary fellow in the Center for Advancing Journalism at University of Melbourne. Her recent books include the acclaimed memoirs, Bloodhound, and by the book. From 1987 until 2011, she worked at the ABC and presented a range of programs, notably books and writing, and later, the book show. Her new book, A Letter to Lila, travels to our deep past and near future about what it means to be human, will be out in September via text publishing. After a career in technology and business, Graham Simpson began writing fiction in 2006. He has published five novels, including one with his wife, Anne Buist, all international bestsellers. 
The Rosie Project was Australian Book Industry Association Book of the Year after winning the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript and has been translated into 40 languages. Graham also writes short stories and screenplays and has published two non-fiction books. Now, just before we start our conversation, I'll briefly tell you about Split. The theme of this anthology is endings, any kind of endings. They can be endings of romantic relationships or relationship with friends and family, geographical endings, like when we migrate to another country, endings of careers or even internal endings where we leave behind particular parts of our past or even parts of our psychological makeup. When I was curating the book, I wanted this thematic diversity. My only criteria was that all of these endings had to be major life changes, the kind of changes that have impacted us profoundly. It had to be a story where something precious was at stake and where the experience of the end had etched itself onto the psyche, perhaps even reshaping us in some way. It was my publisher, Jane Carey, from Mitchura Press, who suggested this topic to me, and of course, I was excited. This is such a potent, dramatic, and universal theme. I mean, who can go through life without some major changes happening to them? At the very least, we leave our youth behind. But I also had another reason why this theme resonated with me so much. For a long time now, I have felt uneasy and, to be honest, bored with the mainstream ways of telling stories about life changes, particularly the difficult ones where we lose something or other. Our culture, I feel, strongly prefers so-called redemptive narratives, which means narratives where a happy ending is mandatory, where no matter how tough the experience a person goes through, they always emerge triumphant, wiser, and in control of the new circumstances. It's like every hardship, cancer, bereavement, breakup has to make us a better person, or at least teach us important lessons. Now, I do like the optimism in such a way of telling stories, but when this is the only way we tell them, which is how it feels right now, then we don't leave room for other experiences where there wasn't any redemption. As a society, we then end up with a storytelling map that is dishonest, and in this climate, people who go through hardships can feel like they have failed if they didn't get any benefits from what happened to them. So in Split, I wanted to create a different book, a book that captures real life, not a fantasy, a book that shows a variety of endings, be they redemptive or not, or somewhere in between. For that, I approached writers I admire and asked them to write honestly about the major life changes. I'm happy to say that almost everyone said yes, and this collection features a diverse and high caliber of Australian authors, all looking at the theme from different angles. For example, Alice Poon wrote about living behind her working class and becoming the first person in her family to go to university. Sunil Badami described the end of his relationship with his father. Damon Young claims he left his child self behind and is better for that. Miffany Jones chronicled the end of her marriage. Dmitry Kakmi decided to, to use his words, divorce himself from his Turkish citizenship. Whereas Graham, wrote about discarding certain of his personality characteristics, and Ramona told the story of how her career at the ABC ended. Of course, mine is a very crude summary, and I'll let Ramona and Graham in a minute tell you about the essays in their own words. But just before we delve into the essays themselves, I want to talk to Graham and Ramona about what is happening now, because I think this is really the kind of elephant in the room we can't ignore. So I was wondering, how are you going at the moment in the shadow of pandemic? Do you feel a sense of some end there for you or for the world? And have you written or perhaps would like to write about the current times? I was hoping maybe 
Um, Ramona, you would like to start? Thanks so much, Lee. And uh, it's great to, to be with you and talking with Graham too. So how are we going with the pandemic? Look, um, I, I, I'll just say that the book I'm, I've just written, uh, as you mentioned, A Letter to Layla, um, is very sort of apposite to this moment because um, with some of the things we now face on the planet, um, the pandemic, but also global warming. Um, I mean, I bet you've looked around at your fellow human beings lately and wondered what exactly makes them tick? And are they ready and able to work together to, to change the course of human history and to, to change the course of this pandemic and, and uh, where we are now? Um, I, I'm actually in lockdown number four, and I think you guys are too. And we're looking around saying, you know, are we all going to be in this together? Are we all going to be able to behave in ways that will benefit all of us? And it's you know, terribly interesting because that's really the subject of, of my book. I mean, I decided to um, investigate what makes human beings tick. So I, I looked at the deep past and the near future of our of our species. I travelled sort of from California to the Caucasus. I explored things from cave paintings and archaeological digs to robots and artificial intelligence. And I even met people who were determined not to die. Um, so I was trying to sort of evaluate what we were doing here on the planet together and whether it's possible for us to change uh, the course of, of the future. It's interesting that, and, and in my um, postscript of the book, it just happened that I was writing this just at the, the height of the pandemic uh, in Australia. So I was thinking this is a very interesting time because I was sort of applying all the things I'd learnt uh, from my investigation, which has taken me five years, to have a look at how things were going with, with our cooperation. So as far as um, the pandemic goes, I'm seeing it as a quite an interesting experiment as far as my book goes, but also uh, an interesting um, observation to how the little children in my family, the grandchildren have adapted to online education, how the parents have adapted to working from home, how relationships are being built on a little bit of remoteness, uh, neighbourliness. It, it's a very interesting experiment in, in, in to how human beings behave. Thank you, Ramona. Fascinating. And Graham, what about you? Do you feel some sort of ending for you, the world, or going to write about it? Well, there's three questions in there. I think one of them is, yeah, is how you... <laughs> Yeah, is how you you manage to pack them into one sentence. But uh, one of them is how is how you see the world. F for me, it's, it's an extraordinary time, and I'm particularly struck with what I would characterise as the breakdown of society that we're seeing, particularly in the USA, and that that frightens me a lot because I think that we have traditionally followed um, what we see. You know, trends in the in the states, and we say, well, that'll never happen here in Australia. And a few years later, we're starting to see that, particularly at the political level. So, looking around you at, at what's going on globally or in the community, it's an extraordinary and, in many ways, a, a terrible time. And in contrast, of course, I've got my own life, my personal life, and it, as far as that's concerned, um, it's it's been a very good time. 
for me. I've had a chance to do a lot of writing. I've avoided a lot of commitments which I would have had otherwise, and I feel I've been better for it and certainly been living better for it. I've got more routine in my life. Um, the days unfold in a quite different way from what they have in the past, and, and I'm finding it a very, uh, a very interesting time personally to be living. And your third question, I guess, is about what we're writing. And that's uh, very apposite for Anne and myself because we were we escaped Italy just as they locked down. And we were over there walking, researching for a novel set on the uh, Assisi Trail, um, a long walk um, in France and Italy. And we planned to go back and finish it pretty much now. Now, of course, that hasn't happened. And as we write the book, we've got the question, we had the question of how do we deal with that time? We actually did enough research that we can write the book. But if we were to uh, place it in this time, then, of course, COVID would be around. It would be a massive influence on the story. And we've cheated, just so you know, and it'll (laughs) effectively be uh, be set last year. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. I mean, I want to sort of keep talking to both of you more about your new books and about the pandemic, but we do sort of need to talk about your essays a bit. But I want to come back later again to what you are, to what you just wrote about Rabot and what you are working um, on, Graham. So in terms of um, your essays in Split, I'm wondering how how did you decide what you're going to write about? Because I'm sure both of you have lived very interesting lives and probably have had all sorts of endings in them. So, Graham, what was it like for you? How did you know what to choose? Well, there have been two very profound splits in my life. I was divorced um, going back more than 30 years, but I felt you'd probably have a few essays of that kind. So I was looking for something else. And the other was when I moved um, at the age of 12 from New Zealand, where I was born, to Australia. Um, So that was a geographical change, but it was also... um, an enormous personal change for me. My life was quite different after that move, and and I chose to reflect on it. And one of the reasons I also chose it was because I was writing a book, the the Rosie Result, uh, which focuses on a a twelve year old child who who turns out to be autistic, uh, Don Tillman's son, you know, and how his life begins to unfold at that age. And I thought I'll go back to when I was twelve, and perhaps that will inform, um, or at least give me some memories of, of of what it was like to be a 12-year-old because I, I don't hang out with too many 12-year-olds and I was very concerned mm-hmm. to have an authentic voice. So I felt I'd be killing two birds with one stone, that by revisiting that time in my own life, I would be not only um, delivering for you, Lee, but also doing some uh, some reflection and perhaps research that would inform the uh, the novel I was writing. That's fantastic. That's something for the writers who are listening now to this podcast to consider, actually, how you can always, whatever you do in your life, to bring it back to, to your work in progress, which is a lot of us writers do, I suspect. Uh, Ramona, what about you? How did you choose the topic for your essay? Well, like Graham, I've had some divorces too <laughs> before now. <laughs> and I thought that there would be sort of probably plenty of material of that kind that you, you would be dealing with. And then I thought that the longest relationship I've had in my life was being with, with a corporation, with the ABC, with the organisation that I fell in love with as a child, like lots of us did 
I, I was a child at, and in our family we didn't have a television so the radio was the thing and I can remember being a little child at, at uh, kindergarten age and there was a program called Kindergarten of the Air or something like that and we used to listen to it and I used to I used to do whatever the lady said to you know stand up and skip around the room or to sit down and listen to a story so kind of like um, Conrad Lorenz's idea of imprinting where he was doing those experiments with ducklings and if if uh, he was the first thing the duckling saw the duckling basically thought he was their mother uh, that's the way imprinting goes in the in the animal world and and for kids of my kind of era and of my class I suppose with very little in the way of provision of culture or you know books or, or television or music around the house um, the radio was a really important resource and also you know kind of like the institution of the bank where we had our state-saving bank passports given to us uh, at school so that we sort of got imprinted on the the, the bank, the state bank, uh, and then it became the Commonwealth Bank. So these institutions were really part of my childhood. And the ABC was an institution which, which was trusted and uh, revered. And so as I grew up with this institution and then later as I you know, thought to myself, I, w- I would like to to be working for the ABC. Um, when I first entered the ABC, you know, as, an, as a freelancer in the early 80s, I just thought this was just remarkable. I was actually entering the radio and being part of all the people in the radio that I used to look into when I was a child. So I thought this long relationship I'd had with this organisation, which was kind of about 30 years if you start, you know, the very first freelancing to the very last program I made, that's a long relationship and it's the longest relationship of my life. So when you asked me, Lee, to write about something that was a split, I was ready by then to talk about it because when I left the ABC in 2011, it was a, a quite a big split for me and I really wasn't ready to talk about it until you asked me, I guess. People used to sort of come up to me and, and ask me how I was and what had happened and, you know, when you have a very public a job, you know, where unlike being a writer, which is what I did immediately afterwards, a full-time writer, although I'd read, written books beforehand, before I left, but this was the first time after I left that I actually had the whole day to myself to do my own work. I and mean, when you front up in front of a microphone every day for all those years and people mm. can hear everything you think and every breath you take and if you hesitate too much, what does that mean? You know, it's a very public space to be working in and then when it stops, it's a very public event and I wasn't ready to talk about it until you asked me, Lee. I feel very honoured to to have you uh, talk about this in your book and Graham, you too, you chose a very deeply personal, deeply sort of revealing topic for your essay. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the titles so, of your sorry, essay. Sorry, Lee, can yeah, sure. So, Lee, can I just can I just buy in for a moment here, because what Ramona said um, rang a rang a big bell, and it's been quite a while, of course, since we actually wrote these essays, and I'd forgotten yeah. that um, for quite a while while. It, 
I toyed with an idea that would have had the two of us on today talking about very much the same sort of thing. I almost wrote about my separation from the company that I built and ran for around 20 years. And that almost ended up being my essay, certainly ahead of the divorce story. And I can remember when I sold it, just after I'd sold it, in the middle of the night, not being able to sleep and actually walking into the office, which was in the city, and sitting at my desk, sort of looking out over the city and sort of in a formal sort of way saying goodbye to it, a very emotional sort of thing. And and I thought, wow, that'll be a very different story, uh, a separation from an organization. And of course, Ramona managed to find, you know, in, in a slightly different situation, of course, but um, in, in that same space. And Gabe, was it also for you like a love affair? Was it a very sort of powerful, emotionally invested relationship? It was like a family. Um, we, we grew to around mm. 60 or 70 people, but for a long time, um, that organization had a, because it started small, it started with just me and then one more person, then another and so on. You had this idea of a growing family. You're very conscious of each other's personal challenges as well as their professional ones. And, you know, I still have very close relationships with many of the people that I worked with over that period of time. So it was like saying, walking away from a family in some sense. I think I have to write another anthology <laughs> for this story. <laughs> um, I, I want to go back now to the titles of your essays, which you both came up with and they're very evocative. So, Graham, why did you call your essay reviring and what does it say about the heart of your essay? Well, what what I did in a, in a very sort of technical sense was I think I rewired my brain. <laughs> I changed... And that's a very technical way of putting it. But I chose to change myself. I made an absolutely conscious decision at the age of 13 that I didn't want to be the person I was. I wanted to be someone different. I didn't want to just act differently. I wanted to be different. I didn't like who I was. And and let me say that came from the environment around me and how that environment was treating me. And rather than being terribly courageous and saying, I am who I am and they can all stick it, I thought, no, I don't like living in this world anymore. Or I would like to. I would like to change myself, and I think we know that the that the brain is, is very malleable up until your early twenties. That that what you do can become what you are, and that relates very closely to a very controversial topic around autism, which is um, applied behavior analysis. It's effectively a a treatment. I put that word in air quotes. A treatment for autism, which attempts to uh, change people's behavior and at the same time, in many ways, change who they are. So whether or not I was autistic. I put myself through some sort of applied behavior analysis, self-administered, and popped out of it, I think, essentially as a different person. And I, you know, I think if you want to, given what I set out to achieve, I suppose I succeeded. Mm. And, and I'm actually planning to talk to you down the track more about this sort of uh, the question of success and um, and the different, the very nuanced sort of uh, discussion that you have in your essay of, of the results of what you've done and how you feel about it. And uh, Ramona, your essay is called Goodbye and Good Luck. It's sort of self-evident, but also, but I still would like to hear from you why you chose this particular title and what does it say to you about the essence of what you wanted to express in the essay? Goodbye and Good Luck is actually the title of one of my very favourite short stories by um, a writer called Grace Paley who I first got to read when I when a friend gave me some short stories to read when I went into labour um, with my first child, which was like 45 years ago now. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to um, complete my thesis when I went to hospital because I had no idea about 
what was going to happen to me. And she said, she was older than me, and she said, oh, I don't think you'll be able to complete your thesis with this baby. I think you might need short stories. <laughs> so Grace Paley was what she gave to me, and Goodbye and Good Luck is a fantastic story. So I quite like that, but also to me it was like um, to say goodbye and good luck to the to this organisation, to the corporation. It, it was, you know, kind of wistful. It says goodbye and good luck. I don't know how much it really meant good luck, but this whole question about standing on a precipice really, saying goodbye to something and looking towards the future and wondering what the next step will be. Will you be able to find firm ground or will you fall on your face? Mm-hmm. And that, that sort of brings me to my next question for both of you. And I want to first ask you, Ramona Steele, and this is to do with identity because you've spent such a long time in the radio and you write in your essay about how much it became uh, in a sense of part of you. So when you finally let go of the, of the radio, did you actually let go of that big part? It, uh, it, was in, it, it took into your sense of self and... Um, uh, who are you today as well? <laughs> Does both still define you to a large extent? Who are you, Ramona? <laughs> who am I? Good. I ask myself every morning I wake up and I say, who am I? You know, um, the thing was, you know, I never got, uh, I, I, never, I never believed that I was um, well known or I was respected because of my work, although, you know, I did put a lot of work into this job. But I always knew that it was the organisation and the corporation that held uh, all the people in it and gave. we gave each other, we gave each other kudos for the work we did. Um, I, was, I was listened to because I was on the ABC. My fellow workers there were doing great work. I was doing good work. We, we all fed into each other's reputations. So I never thought that, you know, Without the ABC, I would be just as well-known and just uh, being able to do just the same sort of work. Uh, you know, it wasn't me, me. I was, I was connected to this corporation. I wasn't under any illusions. So when I co- didn't have the platform anymore, I knew I was the same person because, I, you know, I, I had a very realistic view of myself. It was like I had to find a new thing to do, which is not the same as being a new person. I knew that I wanted to write things. And it was it was interesting because, I mean, for so many years I devoted myself to other people's work and I read it, read them and I talked to them and I, I really promoted them. And I did write my own work, but that was very much in the interstices of my life. It was when the when the children went to their father's place or in the summer holidays and there were snatched moments. And suddenly I had these long days ahead of me and I, I knew that this is what everybody wants. Every writer wants this time to be able to just devote to themselves and here I had it. But, you know, when I sat down at my desk, I thought, well, nobody cares if I'm here or not. <laughs> you know, nobody knows I'm here, nobody knows. And I had to get over that a little bit, just getting used to the fact that it was okay that nobody knew what I was doing or, or cared. I cared and it gave me the time I needed to really explore the ideas that I wanted to explore and I kind of got used to it and I kind of began to like it. 
So, Graham, I found your discussion of your suspected diagnosis of autism in your essay fascinating. And you described how your memory suppressed certain behaviors and predilections you once had, which will be good to hear about. It got me thinking about the more general question of self-knowledge, something you also explored in the Rosie trilogy, at least the way I read it. So to what extent do you think we can be known to ourselves? Or in other words, do you think we are always strangers to ourselves, to some extent at least? Well, it's an extraordinarily deep philosophical question. And let me let me just say that if you do 10 years of analysis, you're going to uncover a whole bunch of things about yourself that you presumably didn't realise before. So it's, there's there's certainly plenty of material there that often isn't on the surface. But, but in a very um, prosaic sort of way, I think we forget an enormous amount of things that happened in our past. And I think we forget selectively. We we remember things which fit the narrative that we want to tell about ourselves, and we forget things that don't fit that narrative. So, um, I mean, a big breakthrough for me um, in thinking while I was writing the, the split essay was that I, I remembered one specific thing from my past which suggested that I might have qualified for an autism diagnosis back when I was a child. It was a, it was a characteristic that somebody had mentioned to me, not, not blowing my nose of all stupid things, just sniffing all the time. And a, a psychiatrist friend of mine said, I've got this autistic patient and all he does is sniff, sniff, sniff. He won't blow his nose. And I thought, I used to do that. And I'd totally forgotten about it. And when I started really trying to trigger the memories and so forth, I remembered a whole bunch of things that I had chosen subconsciously, I guess, to forget about my past because they didn't fit the image of who I was now. And of course, that took me down a, a very interesting sort of journey, which, as you mentioned, culminated in me seeking a diagnosis or at least an assessment to see if I was indeed autistic, which was a very problematic question for me as an author who had written about an autistic character to be out asking. So so let, let me say, Lee, that this little bit of exploration that I did was the most difficult piece of writing I have ever done in my life. I did it, those 6,000 words in parallel with writing the rosy results. And let me tell you, your essay was far tougher to write than the rosy result. Please accept my apologies. <laughs> I've been waiting for that. <laughs> but it's a, you have it here on the podcast uh, documented, but you know what, it's a, it's a terrific piece of essay. And can you maybe talk to us a little bit more about the emotional and perhaps creative difficulty that you had in uh, sort of going back and, and trying to understand your past more and digging into those memories? Well, it's what you realise you've lost. You know, I was just in the last couple of days, um, I had a couple of email exchanges with Elliot Perlman, the, the Melbourne writer, um, around his father, who's still living and um, was my physics lecturer back at uh, when I studied physics at university. And, and you know, we had a different lecturer, a guy by the name of Emmanuel Strzelecki, who taught mathematics. And he famously said one day to us, he said, the first time I saw the Lagrangian equations, it brought tears to my eyes. And we'd always laugh about that. And the reason that we laughed about that was because it was so close to home. Because when um, when Harry Perlman, Elliot's father, taught me special relativity, I had tears in my eyes and I wasn't the only one. Now, now there's I can't tell you, it's an enormously geeky emotional experience, but but I miss it. I miss it. Um, once I once I changed, um, that that experience is no longer accessible to me. Um, and you know that's uh, as I say a very geeky thing and something that I imagine a lot of people would not relate to. But if you get into the right group of nerds or physicists or mathematicians, they will tell you that the right equation or proof could bring tears to their eyes. And that, that is just not 
part of my life in any way. And it's not just about growing up. It's about, you know, I mean, I think Damon Young, you said um, in his um, essay, wrote about leaving childhood behind and being a better person yeah. for it. That, that is a natural thing that we do. But I think you can leave the person that you might have become behind to become a different person, and that is going to be a lot more problematic. That's fascinating insight, and I want uh, to come back to this a little bit later. Uh, Ramona, what about you? You sort of mentioned before that having left uh, ABC took you some years until you were you felt you had the right distance, perhaps, to, to write about those experiences. Was it difficult for you emotionally or creatively to write this essay? Emotionally, it was, it was interesting because I had spent a lot of time not only working in this corporation, but defending it, of course, because it was uh, subject to all kinds of vicissitudes from government. And there was a, always a, a conversation about bias and whether you were, you know, could do the journalism you wanted to do uh, there. And it was, you know, I, I was very much a defender of the organisation, so much so that when I was asked to be the staff elected director to stand for this position, so that the staff could elect the person who they wanted to sit on the board of the organisation, not to represent them, but to be an independent voice that they elected. That was something that I kind of took upon myself and I felt sitting on a board was really kind of important. I I had then worked at the organisation from the very bottom of, as a freelancer and I'd worked my way along and, and had my own shows and made documentaries and got involved in all kinds of areas. But then I was on the board of the organisation and, and I was able to sort of get a view of it, a, a, a panoramic view of the organisation. So I felt like I was like you know defending this this organization from the the um, vicissitudes of, of politics and uh, so that made me feel as if I was sort of a you know a knight <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd, I'd given so much emotionally to the organization and, and I must say the organization had given me a lot too because you know I was able to say here I am I'm from the ABC would you talk to me which is something that not everybody can do because if you just say, will you talk to me, and you're not from an organisation like that, people can say no. But I felt it was, you know, it did a lot for me. It was a big education. I mean, I'd been trained as a scientist, so I understand Graham's tears in his eyes when faced with something just elegant and beautiful about the way the way the world works or the way physics works or the way maths works or the way something happens in biology, some extraordinary thing, and to move you in to say, you know, this is so beautiful and and now, I mean, how is it that this sort of bog-standard uh, animal, this bog-standard equivalent of an ape knows these things or how do we find mm. this? Things. I mean, these are beautiful things, but, you know, I was educated in science, but the ABC gave me an education in literature and in, in politics and in sociology and all the other areas that I hadn't formally done. So it was a two-way 
But yeah, I was very emotionally invested in the organisation. And when I had a disagreement, when I realised, I mean, I think I've, I've written that, you know, you always know when a relationship is over, there's something happens. And this happens in human or human relationships as well. The ones that you can't step away from, like non-family ones, <laughs> the, ones that you, the ones that you make because you, you uh, are romantically or, or, or in this case... Uh, involved in work when you suddenly realize I can't do this anymore this this organizer this person doesn't understand me you know that moment in a relationship where you go I, they don't get me and there's no point in being here anymore so when when a manager said to me but why do you need to read the books that you talk about I mean can't you just do the interviews without reading all the books this is, you know, an argument about why I needed, you know, the time to read and maybe, I, you know. And so when I thought this person doesn't get the show, doesn't get the point, doesn't get me, why would I not read the books and do an interview about them? I mean, I'm not insane, but this this organisation is becoming insane and I don't want to be here anymore. So, um it's a big was a big rift, and it was sure a big emotional moment to say what I thought this was about doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And and speaking about emotions, I think one of the most recurrent emotions often when we talk about major life changes, especially endings, can be regret. Sometimes it can be sort of a component even in uh, when there is a so-called happy ending. So I just wonder, Ramona, but in retrospect, do you feel? that you left the ABC at the right time for you or do you have any regrets about how that ending, the timing or any other aspects of, of that ending? A lot of it, I mean, it wasn't a dispute with your employer. There's, it's a two-way thing and I may not have um, chosen the time to, to end, but in fact I, I couldn't have gone on because the, the situation or the, what, what was possible to do wasn't going to be possible anymore. And I felt that my work, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do it to the standard that I wanted to do it. And so I always had control over the kind of work I was doing. And I, I certainly didn't want to be forced by very small-minded management into providing a worse product than I was wanting to do. So I didn't really have an option at the time. And when I left, I mean, also, you know, there were all kinds of things in my family. My daughter had twins and <laughs> and she had a, a, a youngster under two as well. So it was a time that I could say, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. I can be of more use to my family. But, you know, it was, I mean, I'm now nearly at the point of publishing the third book that I've written since I left, which is nine years ago, plus some essays, including the one that you kindly asked me to do. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had still been doing that job. So really, it was the perfect time to leave. And also I, didn't time. Know, I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> it was also perfect time for us readers to get your books, Ramona. Graham, <laughs> I want to... I want to um, go back with you to sort of that sense of uh, kind of ambivalence that I picked from you earlier when you talked about those changes that you've made to your personality. And actually it would be interesting to hear an example, perhaps if you didn't mind, of one of those changes. But also you write, I set out to change myself and I succeeded. Was it a good thing? 
it's a charged question. And you answer in the essay is nuanced and illuminating. So can you perhaps uh, once again, I'll just repeat sort of to mention one of the changes that you've done to, in, in terms of discarding something, leaving behind, and then talk about how do you feel today, whether, whether, whether it's a boost thing or not, that you succeeded to make the change? Okay. As, as I comment in the essay, it's always problematic when you try to answer a question and say, in effect, do I regret doing or not doing something? When you know that implicit in your answer is, is the caveat, and then I wouldn't be the person I am today. So that's a, the follow-up question is, and are you happy with the person you are today? And I'm very happy with the person I am today and with the life I have. And if I hadn't changed myself, I wouldn't have that life. But that doesn't mean that what I did back then was a good thing to do. And I think a better question is, if that was my child who was in the position that I found myself in, would I want them to do what I did or would I try to counsel or help them to do it in another way? And unequivocally, I would say I would want to help my child find their way through it in a way that kept more of themselves than what I discarded. I discarded, I think, more than anything else, for want of a better word, a geekiness, a fascination with science and mathematics. And it was actually probably more what I replaced it with, that in order to be sort of socially acceptable, I went out there and I learned about football and I learned to kick a football and to do all those sorts of things, which took me away from doing the things that I might have otherwise done. Um, so it, it took me into a very ordinary sort of um, average guy type of life when I was a real outlier at the age of 12. So you know, I don't even feel I'm talking about myself now, so I'm, I'm not no. bragging, but I had a very high IQ. I was ducks of the school I, in both the, the arts and the sciences, you know, both in writing. I was doing exceptionally. And then for several years afterwards, I did not do exceptionally at all. Um, and now I'm doing you know, very nicely in life, but I, I did miss mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking about what you're doing at the moment in life, I want to talk a little bit about your writing. So predominantly you're a fiction writer, but I was very lucky to have an essay from you. And I believe you've written a few other essays as well. But please correct me if I'm wrong. What other essays have I written? Look, there you go. There's this false memory, this memory <laughs> stuff coming in that I've taken this. Any any essays I've written about myself have now been deleted from my narrative. <laughs> now, probably, I suspect you would know better than me. But but actually, staying with this, let's let's assume that you have that. That was the first essay that you've written. Have you enjoyed this? And are you planning to write more in a creative nonfiction genre? No, I did not enjoy it at all, um, Lee. Um, <laughs> I, I, I found it Sorry, an enormously <laughs> painful task. And if yeah. you actually want to know, I'm not even happy with the result. I don't even think that it does me credit from a literary point of view either. Frankly, if I could go back and not have it published, um, I would choose that, not to have it published um, at all. But was it good for me in the sort of Nietzschean sense of you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger? Look, it really was good for me. It forced me to explore some things I wouldn't have otherwise explored. And I'm certain that my novel, The Rosy Result, is better for that, um, for that uh, exploration. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really interesting. Can I, I just wonder, what would you have changed if you could, if you could rewrite this essay? My, I'm lucky enough not to be a particularly public figure, not as public figure as, say, Ramona would be, um, with, a, with a visibility over a long period of time. But 
I don't particularly want anyone reading about my life and saying, no, I didn't like this one so much. No, I didn't think he was authentic <laughs> or I didn't like this part of him. I'm not putting myself, I'm not interested in putting myself out there for examination. I'm happy to put my work out there for that. I'm a writer. Of course, I'm happy to do that. But I'm not particularly happy to put my life out there for examination by people in armchairs who don't write themselves. This is really, really interesting. So you feel more comfortable in fiction. And whereas Ramon, as far as I know, from listening to uh, her speak about writing, Ramona, you, you said, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you said at some point where there's too much, too many interesting things around you in life. And so you prefer to write nonfiction rather than fiction. Am I misquoting you? Is that true or not? I think that's the case. I did write a novel once in the early 90s, but I find, I'm finding that, yes, I'm completely fascinated by the world as I see it around me and, and the hidden things and the mysteries. And I would like to write about it to kind of explain it to myself and hopefully anybody else who, who wants to come along with my exploration and my curiosity. I'm very curious about the world. Although, you know, I do think that if you really want to know what another person is thinking, a novel is the only way to do it because the novelist can tell you what the characters are thinking and why. In life, you know, you don't, you never know what others are thinking. You don't know what your most intimate people are thinking. You don't know what your children are thinking, really. You can't. How can you? So a novelist is the only one who can actually understand this sort of empathy of, of being in another person's shoes. But that's not my job. And I am going to try and kind of interpret the world as I see it. And that's really what I think I'd like to keep doing. Thank you. Can I just buy in here for a moment? Oh. Because there's a, a very important distinction here. I think there's one thing to write nonfiction about the world around you and, and even your interpretation of that. But I think memoir is a very different place. Um, so if, if you're trying to write introspectively, as it were, then you're telling a very different story than, than observing what might be happening in the USA right now or, or whatever. And I have no problem at all about writing, um, writing that second type of nonfiction. Um, I've got, as you mentioned at the beginning, I've got two nonfiction books and I've certainly felt no qualms about writing on database design. But writing about myself and my, my internal world, that's something that I probably largely want to keep off the page. I think the way I, I've done it is that you're right. I, I have combined the idea of memoir and some exploration about some big question. And in a way, I interviewed Norman Mailer once and he was talking about wow. the kind of nonfiction he was do, writing about. And he said that uh, I, think, I think I was <laughs> writing, a, I was asking him about how hard he was on himself as well as being hard on the people that he was writing about. And he said that he wanted to put himself in this narrative so that people can understand he was hard on himself. He wasn't letting himself, you know, get, get away with anything. And people would think if I, if I get, if this guy is, is being honest about himself, then he's probably being quite clear eyed about the other kinds of things he's telling me about. And for the kind of nonfiction I've written, I've really tried to sort of, I mean, in a way, you know, everybody's view about the world is going to be different and, and I don't really buy into the idea about sort of, you know, there is no truth because I do actually believe in the law of physics, laws <laughs> of physics, 
both macro and micro as they are. Um, so I do think that, you know, my I do believe in gravity and I, I, do, I do believe that um, arrow of time goes in one direction mostly for our, all practical purposes. Mm-hmm. But I do like to bring people along by telling a story about how I'm going to receive this stuff and uh, understand people and, and interview people and how I'm finding them because I find that, you know, if you're – if I'm finding the person I'm interviewing a bit disagreeable and I can say so, and you can actually interpret what I'm saying about what I'm finding. Um, if you think, oh, well, she sounds a bit grumpy today and maybe what she's telling me has, is coloured by that. So in a way, sort of the combination of memoir and sort of factual reporting is the way I've come to be able to explain what I want about the world. But you're right, it is a combination of those things. It's not just straight non-fiction, mm. right? Now that we're sort of speaking about writing and about different genres and books, I wonder if, and, we, and we're speaking in the podcast of libraries, I just wonder if you maybe want to share with us what are you currently reading in your isolation? So, Graham, what are you reading? I, I read very little when I'm writing, and, and there's three reasons there. The first is just... My actual drafting is a very intense process, and mm-hmm. um, I just don't want to be interrupted, really. I, I just don't want to take time out to do anything that's discretionary. Do you, can I just interrupt and ask you, uh, because this is really interesting, uh, so would you write all day long? Is that what you Okay, say? well, I divide my writing into three stages. There's planning, there's that drafting and editing uh, or rewriting and in the drafting stage that's where I want to put a really concentrated effort into getting it down getting it done it might only be for six weeks or so that I'm doing that full-on first draft and at that period which I've just been doing for my uh, my current book it's just flat out and as I say, I don't want to distract myself with anything. If I've got a choice of uh, of writing or doing something else, I try to say, well, can I can I do the writing? So that's one reason is a time factor. The second, when I'm drafting, mm-hmm. is the voice. I don't want um, someone else's voice to uh, to distract me. And the third, and probably the most important one, is I don't want to be intimidated. What I'm reading is someone's final result that's been through editing and all sorts, and it, it'll be so much better than whatever I'm writing, what it should be. And I find that's just like, you really you think, I'm just not going to get there. I'll never be able to write as well as this. So largely speaking, while I'm drafting, I don't read very much unless something comes my way that I don't have a lot of choice about. So I just read um, Sally Hepworth's book, uh, The Good Sister, um, not, you know, I mean, it is, it will almost certainly be marketed as women's fiction. So by definition, I'm not the target audience. But Sally's a, a remarkably good writer, uh, particularly in that genre, I think, a good, great observer of human relationships. And, you know, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the book. So it was a, a nice little break. Thank you, Graham. And would you be prepared, before I go to Ramon and hear what she um, is reading at the moment, but would you be prepared just to tell us what you what's your next books? And I'm sure a lot of people will be anticipating them. Okay, I've just got the edits back, and I mean just like like 30 minutes ago while we were talking, that little break that we had. Um, I just got my edits back yeah. from uh, for a book with, I've written with my wife, Ann Buist, called Two Steps Onward, which is a sequel to our book Two Steps Forward. So... That's, I'm working on that, and I'm working on a how-to book on writing called The Novel Project. Um, so I'm not even sure which one of those will be out first. Wow, wow. Uh, do you know, do you have like a publication schedule roughly or not yet? Um, look, I'm expecting that Two Steps On would be, will be out around April of next year. 
the novel project haven't submitted it yet, so we will get a look. My guess would be roughly the same time. Oh, that that's wonderful, Ramona. Could you maybe you just finished a book? You're about to have a book published, so do you have more time than Graham to to read at the moment? Oh, now I do, but of <laughs> course, you know exactly like Graham, I cannot possibly read anything while I'm writing, and that's uh, not to do with one of the many subjects that I was looking at. Um, so for the last five years, I've just been totally focused on reading in order to research, in order to update uh, the vast numbers of, of uh, areas that I was I was working on. But actually, um, I did read Underland by Robert McFarlane uh, as part of that, um, which is a wonderful collection of essays about uh, his travels underground, going into caves, going into all kinds of dark places. Uh, he's a terrific writer if you haven't, haven't read him, non-fiction writer. And um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which is mm. quite an old book now, but it's really about how the human mind works and all the mm. things that our brains do that we're not really aware of. We think we're in control of what we think and how we frame things, but we're really very much not. And that was absolutely fascinating. But since I finally, they've pressed send and it pu- and then printing my book I read Kate Grenville's A Room Made of Leaves because uh, I did an interview with her last week so that that is her historical novel set at the the beginning of the colony and um, she's such a terrific writer and it was a great pleasure and also The World of Yesterday by Stefan Zweig which is uh, a book which is I think was published about 1942 or something it's his memoir of his childhood in Vienna at the turn of the 19th century, and uh, I always like to go to my sort of middle Europa writers. That's where my parents came from, not Vienna, but Poland, but in that sort of general area, and it, it sort of chimes with me, that sort of Central European, Eastern European taste in in fiction. I was just going to say that's such a good list of books that I really feel I could I should mention a couple more. So the last book I finished before I started before I started drafting was Killing Commendatory by um, Haruki Murakami, and and I just find him a strangely addictive writer who writes nothing like I do. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I'm constantly saying, how has he kept me interested? How has he broken all of these rules of popular popular fiction? And it's still keeping me in and keeping and keeping me engaged. And I was halfway through um, before I started the writing project. All alike, we uh, we cannot see Anthony Doerr, and you know he's just such a a fine writer that I yeah, I look at that and say, no, I will not continue reading that. I will be intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds wonderful. That sounds like we have quite a lot of um, reading recommendations for our listeners. Ramon and Graham, I want to thank you profusely. That was a very, very stimulating conversation. I'm very much looking forward to new books. Uh, you as Ramona next month and you, Graham, hopefully in April. And meantime, if you're kind of stuck and don't know what to read, uh, not you, Ramon and Graham, but the listeners, you're also very welcome to pick up Split and read the, the essence that we just discussed. And I, I will sort of end by saying that I, I agree with Graham about a lot of things, but I strongly disagree with him about the quality of his essay. <laughs> and Ramona's essay is, of course, uh, fabulous too. So thank you very much for uh, bearing with us. It was a great pleasure speaking with you, Lee, and you too, Graham. And maybe we can all yep. meet after the pandemic. 
Oh, that would be amazing. Always, always a delight. And we should be doing that. <laughs> that was Lee Kaufman talking to Graham Simpson and Ramona Caval about the anthology Split, True Stories of Leaving, Loss and New Beginnings, which is published by Ventura Press and is available to buy from all good booksellers, as well as being available to borrow from Yarra Libraries. Please rate, share and subscribe to the Yarra Libraries podcast feed for more podcasts like this. If you are not a Yarra Libraries member, please join. It is free and gives you access to the vast collection situated across the five libraries within the city of Yarra. Thanks once again to the Ewing Trust for their support of literacy and learning in Fitzroy and for making this podcast possible. (laughs) 